we surrender our expectations to God's. We surrender our expectations to God's expectations. We model the church around the character of God. We trust God to enable us to do that which we can't naturally see ourselves doing. We understand that glorifying Christ, not meeting our own needs, needs to be at the center of all that we do. We confidently access the power of God in us by the Holy Spirit. We process resistance positively as an opportunity to to, to mature. We worship God in spirit and in truth. We are aware of Satan's purposes and strategies so so that we, we don't fall into his traps. We love God and we love man, but we don't love what the world loves. We grieve sin, and without ulterior motives, we seek forgiveness. We are shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves when dealing with sin and confession. We choose life over death. We accept that true life is one in the death of sin and self. We just saying that. We accept that true life is one in the death of sin and self. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We commit to and embrace the journey. We accept the privileges and responsibilities of being the church of the firstborn. Such a rich idea. And we surrender all of our preconceived notions and predetermined standards and humbly seek God's vision and obey his leading. These lessons were taken from the story of Moses delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt and seeking to build a holy nation. And they're so applicable and so appropriate for us as we try to build together a holy church. Now, uh, Colleen and I like to read, and uh, I've heard there are people out there that do this, and I just can't understand it. I would never do this. Um, But they start a book, and then they go to the end to find out the answer, and then they come back to the beginning and read again. I don't know. I would never do that. That would blow it for me. We're kind of doing that. Last week, we we kind of did that, and today we'll be doing it again, because what we're doing is we're, we're, we're finding out how it went for Moses building a holy nation. And we're looking to Nehemiah for that answer, because in Nehemiah, we find out how the mission went, how Israel went into the land of promise and how they did in being a holy nation. And so we're cheating. <laughs> Next week, we're going to go back. We're actually going to go back to, the, to, to the, the, the shoreline of the Red Sea. Because that's where we are in the narrative at this point. Now, the history of Israel has not come to an end. So I don't want you to take that from what I just said. It will come to an end when Christ returns. I'm really curious to see how Israel and Christianity, you know, and Jesus, how that all sort of works out. The promises to the patriarchs. I'm just really, 
I'm longing to kind of understand all that. But I'm convinced because of what Paul wrote that the history of Israel is not over. Our today, today we're going to be talking once again about Nehemiah in this fast forward look that we're taking. Last week I suggested that we as a church are experiencing a Nehemiah moment. And I looked around and I saw Nehemiah sitting in those chairs. Glued to those chairs, apparently. <laughs> but in those chairs. Israel had reached the promised land. And just as God predicted, it broke with its covenant with God. And ultimately, and it ended up being overthrown by its enemies and being taken into captivity. God has an amazing way of making very clear what sin does. We're in captivity. We're delivered from captivity in Christ. We sin, <laughs> we enter captivity again. Sin is captivity. Sin is oppression. Satan doesn't want you to think of that that way. He wants you to think that sin is freedom. No, it's, it's putting your arms out and saying, please apply the handcuffs. That's the truth. Israel did that. Anyways, it had uh, ended up that uh, Israel was captured, destroyed, captured, and taken into Babylon. And that's where we find Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is working for the king at the time, uh, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Um, and he was the cupbearer. Now, rem remember what a cupbearer does. It's if wine is bring, being brought to the king, um, the cupbearer drinks a little bit of the wine because in those days, everybody was out for you <laughs> if you were the king and poisoning was the favorite method of getting rid of you. And so uh, the job that Nehemiah literally had was to drink the wine, uh, a little bit of it, to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Tough job. <laughs> Tough job. Last week, we, we basically considered this question. What do we do when we find ourselves living out the consequences of our rebellion and come to our senses like Nehemiah did? What do we do when we find ourselves living the consequences of our rebellion and come to our senses? Nehemiah's story, and this is why we're looking at, gives us the roadmap, the roadmap to restoration. He acknowledged God and placed him in his rightful place. Israel was in Babylon because it had diminished God by equalizing him with the pagan gods. And Nehemiah knew that restoration required that God himself be put in his rightful place. He grieved his sin and the sin of his people. They prayed and they fasted. They confessed their sin. 
They asked for forgiveness for this sin. And then they did something really interesting. I love this, that he did this. They claimed the promise of restoration because Nehemiah knew the law. And he remembered when Moses was with the people still, just before they went into the land of promise. And God spoke to him in a powerful way. And he gave a message to Israel. And he said, you're going to go in. If you go in and, and you choose life and obey the law, you're going to have prosperity. But if you go in and you break the covenant, you will be removed from this land of promise. You won't be there long, to be quite frank, he said. But God also said, even then, when you are scattered all over the Middle East, if you'll humble yourself, I will bring you back. And Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to, to the king, <laughs> the pagan king, Artaxerxes, remembers that we can repent and we can be restored. And Israel can be respo restored to a holy nation. So he did that. And today we're talking and looking at what he actually did to restore Israel. So I'm going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And I'll just read it for you. I think in this time of COVID, because we have to stay six feet apart, wear masks and do this, you need to bring your Bible to church. Your Bible, because we can't supply Bibles. You see that? So now you can bring your Bible, contaminate it all you want, <laughs> and take it back to your German festive house. <laughs> But it's your Bible, okay? Don't let other people touch it. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting by his side, asked, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, that's the states between Israel or Judah and um, Babylon, or Persia at this point, um, can I uh, have letters to the governors of those nations so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel 
by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was with me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And then the king had also sent an army of officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Heronites, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, what I want to do is I want to just frame our thinking today around this idea. Taking the Nehemiah narrative, I want us to think about it from a perspective of commitment. You see, commitment is born out of conviction. And it is strengthened, not weakened or diminished, by adversity. Commitment is born out of conviction and is strengthened by adversity. For us to build a holy church, we need conviction and its resulting commitment. Now, it is clear that Nehemiah was convinced that God was calling him to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And it was that conviction that resulted in him accomplishing that task in spite of great adversity. Here are some of the hurdles that Nehemiah had to overcome. Now, let's get back to that moment when Nehemiah is standing before King Antixerxes, it's really hard to say that, the king. And the king asks him, what's wrong? You know, it's hard for us to understand. We, we've never been in slavery. We've never been under the authority of a king who could kill you like that. <laughs> no judges, no court, no, no trial. He could just say, kill this guy. And your life is over. It's hard for us to understand the chutzpah, the audacity, the temerity that Nehemiah shows with the king. Not to mention that he is a proven, nice, amicable, and apparently happy slave. Doing a great job. Why would I ever want to let go of Nehemiah? He's awesome. He's doing a great job for me. But do you see? <laughs> and I love the fact that he didn't, he didn't just ask for time off. He says, oh, by the way, could you partner with me in this project? With the, I mean, this is Jerusalem. I mean, these guys do not really care too much about Jerusalem. Like, could you partner with me in this? Could you give me letters so that I can get there safely? Oh, and by the way, we're going to need timber. I know you have a royal forest with the finest of wood. <laughs> Do you mind if I talk to the keeper of the royal forest and get some wood for my project? The king says, no problem. Oh, and by the way, I'll send the military with you to make sure you do get back to work. 
get back to Jerusalem. So the first hurdle is he had no mind, like he he had no right in, in reasonable terms to be asking the king of this. That's a hurdle. But the I think the most significant hurdle is the opposition that he met. Now let me backtrack just one second. If we are to act on our calling to build a holy church, we got to have the same degree of conviction and commitment that Nehemiah had. Conviction and commitment that will result in boldness. Boldness to ask God anything we need to do to accomplish the task. Boldness to step out in faith and build something that only God can build with our hands and our feet, our ears, our mouths, our hearts. We need to be bold. Nehemiah is bold. And we need to be bold when we're undertaking this task. Opposition. Who's this Sambalat and Tobiah? Sort of makes me think of a um, Disney World cartoon movie or something. And then there was Sambalat and Tobiah, the bad guys. Right? Who are these guys? Well, at this point, Judah, where Jerusalem is, is basically just a vassal state, which is just basically a state that really has its own sort of government but under the thumb of Persia, Antarxerxes, right? So basically there's this sort of like colonial government that has to basically do its, the king's bidding. And so when Nehemiah comes and he's got this project to rebuild Jerusalem, you can imagine they weren't too pleased. They were not Jews, but they were the governors overseeing Jerusalem at the time. So they were not too pleased with the idea of this restoration of of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the heart, it was the capital of the Jews. And so they made it difficult for Nehemiah to rebuild that wall. When he first got there, Sambat and Tobiah mocked and ridiculed Nehemiah and the Jews. And they said, how are you going to take that pile of rubble and build a wall? They accused them of insurrection. I love this stuff. We see this stuff in the news all the time. But they accused Nehemiah of, you're just trying to make another great Israel, and then you're going to revolt against the king. And they're just spreading misinformation. And then as the walls started to take shape, they plotted to attack them. While they're working, Nehemiah and the Jews. So much so that Nehemiah has to take good workers and make them just guards. And then he had to have half of the guards Do that. They had to take half of the workforce and just have them sort of guard. Okay. And the other thing that they did is those guys who actually were working on the wall, they had to carry weapons. See, this is not easy to do when you're trying to build this colossal wall around Jerusalem. 
All of it made rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem significantly more difficult, but it also tested their commitment. And it proved their strength to overcome adversity. It tested their resolve. As we build a holy church that God is calling us to build, we need to expect opposition, ridicule, efforts to call into question our motivation. People are watching. We need to anticipate that people within our church who are not convinced or committed, and people outside the church who are, for whatever reason, somehow threatened by our purpose will seek to undermine our efforts. But it will be our conviction that we are doing what God has called us to do that will strengthen our resolve and motivate, motivate us to stay the course. So, Nehemiah had no right asking the king. He's a slave for crying out loud. There was incredible opposition to the building of this wall. But the third hurdle was there was not very much expertise. I love reading through chapter 3. I mean, you might say it's almost a little bit like a genealogy. But it talks about who rebuilt the wall. I love this. It wasn't J&J's construction who have a full fleet of expert carpenters, you know, a full fleet of masons. It was your average Joe who rebuilt. And Nehemiah lists everybody who worked on the wall and what section of the wall they did. There were priests, dare I say, clergy, Getting their hands dirty? Good grief. Goldsmiths. Perfume makers. I can imagine that. Governors. People that were work, like were leaders. There were merchants. Bakers. <laughs> Levites. Residents. Just regular people. And they looked at their part of the wall. And they said, well, I live right here. That's my part of the wall. And they just did it. They were committed. One continuous wall punctuated by these gates was constructed by a diverse group of people. It demonstrated that commitment, not expertise, is what built that wall. Commitment, not expertise. As we humble ourselves and submit to God's will for New Glasgow Christian Church, we will need to follow the example of the Jews who rebuilt the wall. You know, ultimately, they're going to be making perfume again. And the goldsmiths are going to be shaping gold. And the priests are going to get back to priestly duties. But right now, they're building the wall. The wall's got to be built. We need hands, we need feet, we need muscle. If you can't do that, we need keen eyes to make sure that Sam Blatt and Tobiah don't get in the way. We need everybody. I think that's what Gina was talking about earlier. Ultimately, they're going to serve in the holy nation by using their God-given gifts. No doubt. 
But they understood that there are times, like building a wall, when you need to trust God to do that which is outside your gifting. We can't say, well, I lead music. I'm not doing Sunday school. Whatever. That's an example. There are times when we just have to go outside. And that's what Israel did. A perfume maker was building a wall. Fancy that. The fourth hurdle was that not all of the Jews bought into this colossal team project. That's hard to imagine. Not all of the Jews bought into this colossal team effort. Not only did Nehemiah have to build this crazy huge wall with inexperienced personnel, outside threats, had to, he also had to deal with privileged people within the Jewish community exploiting the workers. <laughs> Can you imagine the audacity? Chapter 5 you'll read, and I hope you all read Nehemiah, it's not that long. Some of the nobles, despite the importance and significance of this project Nehemiah has for them, they still insisted on getting their mortgage payments on time. They still insisted on people working and doing their jobs while at the same time doing the other job. They wanted their fees paid on time. And it got to the point where the people were being impoverished by these unscrupulous businessmen and Nehemiah, he got so ticked off. He was so incensed at this. He was angry of this exploitation. Sadly, within any body of believers, there are those who do not buy into the vision. And they will fight hard to keep business as usual. I love that Nehemiah recognized the corrosive nature of these businessmen who didn't rise to the occasion and make an exception to help enable the project. Chapter 5 talks about how Nehemiah calls them out and shames them and puts an end to their selfishness. Please hear this. God has always maintained a remnant of faithful people. <laughs> Remember Elijah? He's called to take on the pagan priests. And it just seems like it's him fighting alone. And at one point he says, God, it's just me. And God says to him, I got a thousand more of you. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> There's always a faithful remnant that God maintains. In this case, in Nehemiah's case, they were impoverished. They were the powerless. And if it hadn't been for Nehemiah's leadership, they would have to abandon the project just to get food on the table. At New Glasgow Christian Church, we cannot allow naysayers to erode our conviction or our commitment and realize that it is the remnant 
that carries the torch. Nehemiah, when he was called by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, had to, had to do that by being confronted with incredible hurdles. He had no right to ask the king. He faced fierce opposition. He had little expertise and he had to deal with issues within the Jewish people. Now, despite all this, Nehemiah 6.15 states, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elel in 52 days. <laughs> I love that. Trump's trying to get a vaccine by election day. <laughs> what has he got? He calls it Project Hyperspeed or something like that. You know, he's, he's got a project. He's got a name for it, of course. So... This wall, which was a pile of rubble, was completed, and it says it right there, Nehemiah 6.15, if you don't believe me, in 52 days. It is no wonder that we read in the very next verse these words. When all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, lost their self-confidence, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of Nehemiah. No. Done with the help of the ruling elites. No. <laughs> Done with the help of our God. Impossible to accomplish something of this magnitude in this amount of time without it being a God thing. And people were watching. And people said, God's doing something as they build those walls. Building something holy can only be achieved by a holy God. And then he uses our commitment to accomplish it. So what were the results of the wall being built? Israel experienced a revival. It came to its senses. It reestablished a nation that was distinct and holy and set apart for God. The law of Moses was read aloud. The people signed an agreement to commit to God's law and to God himself. They reestablished the worship practices. They reestablished the clergy. They reestablished the practices of offerings and sacrifices and festivals. And once again, they guarded against those who would try to assimilate with those that they were never supposed to assimilate with. Do you know, Samlet and Tobiah wouldn't even have been part of the story if Israel had gone in and literally kicked out of Judah out of Canaan, the people that they were supposed to get rid of. But they wouldn't. They just assimilated. And that was what God said. Don't do that. So, lo and behold, we got a Sambalat and Tobiah, a thorn in the flesh. And it's because they didn't do what they were supposed to do in the first place. 
All in all, they recommitted to holiness and to being set apart by God. Now, what can we learn from Nehemiah that we can apply to our moment, our Nehemiah moment? Well, I believe the account confronts us with the question of commitment. Are we convinced that we are called to build a holy church, first of all? Are we committed to that calling? Will the inevitable hurdles undermine or strengthen our commitment? As I see it, commitment is born out of conviction and is strengthened by adversity. But each one of us needs to search our hearts and decide. Those who remain committed will be the remnant that God will use to accomplish his purposes through New Glasgow Christian Church. Tuesday night would be a good opportunity for you to work on that with God in our prayer meeting. Next week, we're going to go back to the Red Sea, as I said, and we're going to continue to look at what it means to build a holy church. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this amazing story of Nehemiah. I thank you, Lord, that you provided it for us so that we can have our own restoration, build our own walls, and that we would be a holy church set apart for you, unique, one that speaks of you and not us, one that brings glory to you and strikes fear in the heart of those who would diminish God and his church. Lord, I just pray that we would be considering our commitment. I pray, Lord, that you would work in each of our hearts. Speak to us about our commitment. Let us not make excuses. Let us understand that the walls were built by people who had no right building the wall. But they did it with your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.